0: Well, welcome to our Sunday School for Graceway Baptist Church. We're covering the lesson that is uh, to be presented on March 28th. So um, teachers, thank you so much for watching this or listening to this early so you can prepare. And for those of you who had to miss Sunday School and are doing this to catch up, I really, really commend you for that and appreciate that. That's a wonderful thing to do. We uh, are going through, as you know, the New City Catechism questions and answers. Here's the question What does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? And uh, the answer, of course, comes into the ninth commandment that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Boy, that's important. Some people will tell you the truth, but they don't do it in a loving way. And it makes you defensive. It makes you not receptive to something that probably would help you. And um, I've been around doctors enough lately that uh, some of them have a really good, we call it a bedside manner, and some don't. And I've come to understand that while the bedside manner is nice, And I would prefer that. And if I were a doctor, I would want to have a good bedside manner. The real key is competence. Is the doctor, does he know what he's talking about? And is he telling you the truth in a way that's going to help you? And uh, sometimes we can be truthful with people, but we do it in such a way that it puts them off or it makes them resistant or defensive to something that might really help them. Now we can argue that they shouldn't be that way, and they shouldn't, let's be honest. They ought to just take the truth no matter how it is. But if we can um, do what the Bible says and speak the truth in love, in other words, to do it because we love them. See, some of you have trouble telling people the truth because you really don't care that much about them. That's a problem. And then for some people, They don't do it in a loving way. And people need to know that they're loved and they need to know that you care uh, in what you do. So there's something to work on. Speaking the truth, that's important, but doing it, of course, in love. And the tenth, that we are content not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. Has it ever just made you mad that somebody else had something good that came their way? Has it ever just bothered you that somebody else had uh, something happened to them that you've been praying about for months, maybe even years, and God hasn't given it to you, but he gave it to somebody else? Why isn't that happening to me? That's kind of the spirit of the 10th commandment. Learning to be content with what God has given us, with where God has placed us, with the circumstances in which we live. And that is so important to learn contentment. In James chapter 2, verse 8, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... And then he quotes the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, unquote. You are doing well. Well, who doesn't want to do well? Who doesn't want to hear the Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what we want. That's what we live for. And we want the affirmation from the Lord that we are doing well in everything that we do. So if we explore this just a little bit, scratch the surface, it can be a a life-changing thing. Um, Someone said, loving your neighbor, uh, in loving your neighbor, James is not advocating some kind of emotional affection for oneself. Some people, I've heard this for years, if you love your neighbor as yourself then you can't really love your neighbor until you love yourself. Well, self-love is clearly a sin in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2. Rather, the command is to pursue something or pursue meeting, pardon me, the physical health and spiritual well-being of one's neighbors. And your neighbors fall within the sphere of your influence. Uh, you, you are not accountable for somebody you never meet and that you don't know. But this thing about loving your neighbor is for those around you, those that you do come in contact with, and certainly those that you know. And it references Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37 um, with the same ministry and concern as one does naturally for oneself, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. And that's from the MacArthur Study Bible. In other words, um, here's the Keenan version of that. Be as quick and willing to make other people's lives as easy, comfortable, and stress-free that you are your own. And it also includes caring for their soul. And so when you think about how quick we are, if we're hungry, we're going to find something to eat in this culture. That's why we overeat sometimes. If we are cold, we're going to find a way to get warm. If we're warm, we're going to find a way to get cool. Uh, It's all about doing whatever we need to do to be comfortable. And loving your neighbor as you love yourself means to be aware of the needs of other people, the situation of other people like you are your own. We're very sensitive to our situation and what we want and what we need, or at least think we need, what would make our lives better, what would make them easier. And we need to be that aware when we are thinking about other people. But don't just let it be the physical, let's think about their spiritual needs as well. It could be that neighbor that you look at and you say, boy, I wish I had their money and they had a ward on their nose. It could be that they are spending the way that they spend and earning the way that they earn, should have said that backwards, um, because of the emptiness in their heart and in their soul. It could be because of the lack of depth in their relationships. It could be because of a lot of other things that maybe you enjoy that they just don't, and the only way they know how to fill it is with material possessions or something like that. And it could be that the person you resent the most is also the person who would trade places with you in a heartbeat if they could just sleep at night if they could just get along with their family, if they had some love and some laughter in their life, things that you enjoy and yet you take for granted. It really is a lot of times the little things, the basic things, the simple things that make life worth living. And they are the things that come from the blessing of God, by the grace of God, and obviously through the undeserved mercies of God, because we're no better than any lost person. And even though we're made in the image of God, we also share uh, greatly in the depravity that we're all born with. And it's only because of God's wonderful grace where he sent his son to die for us and to bear the wrath of God that we deserved and uh, to forgive us and give us the righteousness of Christ that we have anything good in our lives. And even lost people, think about there are some lost people that have happy marriages. That's grace, and they don't even understand it. They don't thank God for it. There are lost people who have excellent health, maybe better health than some Christians do, but they think it's something that they did and something that they deserve, and they don't really thank God for it. And they miss the benefit and the blessing of good health. And we could go on and on and on with that. But there are also things in their life that they just cannot access. The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That is perpetual for a person who doesn't know Christ. They don't have a prayer until they do like the publican in the temple who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They don't know the peace that comes with um, salvation so that you don't have to be afraid of death anymore because you know that death is just a change of address. You go from living here to living there. Absent from the body, Paul said, and present with the Lord. And they don't have that blessed assurance. And we could go on and on with those things. We've got to learn to be content with the Lord, with our relationship with the Lord, and with what he has given us. Um, I heard Ron Dunn say one time, if God doesn't supply it, it's because you don't require it. Let me say that again. If God doesn't supply it, It's because you don't require it. And why God gives some of his children more than he gives others, I don't really know. Sometimes when we think about these things in America, we compare our life with people that are richer than us, richer Americans. But I've been to the slums of India, and I don't know why it is that there are people there living in the slums ministering in the slums as believers. I think about uh, a guy named Monsi. He lives there in the slums and he ministers in the slums, helps educate children, helps get, uh, raise money for medicines for the people. And uh, he lives among them and preaches to them uh, several times a week and does a lot of outreach and things like that. But he lives among the disease. He's susceptible to the disease. He lives there in the smell and in the poverty and uh, that type of stuff. And uh, why is it that he lives there and I get to live here? Why is it that some people live in a Muslim country where they're imprisoned for doing what I'm doing now and I get to live here? I can't answer that. That's up to God. And so when we think of it in that way and realize just how much God has blessed us, it's embarrassing how discontented we are and how many times that we would break that 10th commandment. So we've got two of them, the 9th and the 10th commandment that we have to uh, think about and think about how we're going to live and how we're going to Um, apply it to our lives. So, first of all, I want you to think about this um, in, in this way. A strong implication. Now, you noticed when we read the verse, it says if you, and then the word really is there. The word really. This means it's more than just words. It's more than just intent. When you stand before God one of these days and you say, Well, I intended to be a truthful person, or I intended to uh, fight covetousness in my life. I intended to love my neighbor as I love myself. Well, that's not going to cut it. And I'm sure that uh, that intent that comes from the Lord, there's a reason for that. But it's got to move beyond that. You've got to act on it. It's more than casual interest. It specifies focus, intent, and purpose. Do we wake up every day thinking that we are to glorify God, thinking about how we can minister to other people, thinking about how we can love God better than we did the day before, and thinking about how we can really love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's a strong intent if you really want to obey this law and keep this law. Secondly, notice that it is a sovereign command. When James speaks of it, he calls it the royal law. That is uh, important. That is put there to remind us that this is not just coming from a nobody or a commoner or somebody just like us. This is not a quote from, I don't know, Martin Luther King or Gandhi or something like that. This is the royal law. Now, the word law carries a lot of force and weight, but I want to emphasize the word royal. It stresses the source or the origin. This is coming from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We probably ought to take it more seriously Than we do. It also stresses beauty and richness and value. You know, whenever you see the coronation of a king or queen or a royal wedding, probably most of us have seen that rather than the coronation, or some ceremony, maybe that takes place with Queen Elizabeth or her family in England, one of the things that you'll notice is it's very, very ornate, it's very beautiful. And God is emphasizing here it's the royal law because this is a beautiful law. This is a law that's dripping with gold and silk and velvet, and it's beautiful. There's something about a Christian who puts into operation the loving of their neighbor as they love themselves that puts into operation the... Speaking of truth that makes that person's life beautiful and wonderful and rich and ornate, their life has influence even after they die, even from the grave, their legacy goes on. And it's not something disgusting. It's not something to be rejected. It's not something to be laughed at. It's not something to be mocked. It's not something that you have to run away from. Far too often, you um, plan a funeral, as I've done a lot over the years, and you meet with someone that maybe you don't know. And uh, I remember sitting in... um, Family's home in, is either Tuttle or Chelsea, and asking them about the person that died. And I said something that I had heard about them that was good. And one of the sons started laughing and had to leave the room because he was laughing so hard. Apparently, the statement that I made was very untrue. You don't want to leave that kind of legacy, do you? You want to leave the kind of legacy like a king would leave that people would want. They want the king's fortune. They want the king's title. They want the king's possessions. They want the king's power. This is a royal law. It's a beautiful law. Make your life beautiful and decorated with this. It also stresses the authority and the seriousness of it. It's a royal law. It came from the king. You better not ignore it. We've all seen movies and we've read things from history where the law of the king, the word of the king comes down and it's not just a suggestion. It is something that is supposed to be obeyed. It's supposed to be obeyed now because the power and the authority of the king is behind it. And so uh, all of this is found in the word, the royal law. Uh, and and there's also, of course, accountability in that. It reminds me of Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord? That's a royal title by the way, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. And when Jesus said that, it's because it's incomprehensible to think of someone that has authority, like a king or a lord and uh, we bow before them and we acknowledge that title, and then we do what we want to do. We don't, uh, that authority has no weight. It has no bearing on our lives. That's an oxymoronic statement, isn't it? To call somebody Lord and not do what they say. So here's an oxymoron for you. No, Lord. You can't put those two things together. It's always a yes if they really are Lord. And so that's kind of what's wrapped into uh, the fact that James says this is the royal law. There's a lot to think about and a lot to contemplate on that word royal. So let's go to the third point. And it is an unchanging standard. Notice that what James says, it's according to the scripture. It's not according to what you and I think, it's not according to society, it's according to the scripture. Well, what do we know about the scripture? Well, think about it in this way. Scripture is eternal. Scripture is um, inerrant. It's never wrong. Scripture is infallible. It will never lead you to do anything wrong. And scripture is sufficient. We don't need any more words from anyone else once we have the Bible, once we have the Scripture. Okay, Now, a lot of people struggle with that, but uh, the Bible is very clear we're not to add to or take away from its words. It is the final word. It judges, it measures, it is the standard for everything that we do. We don't make it subjective. We don't take the Bible and say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I had a voice that told me something else. You can't do that. You can't uh, say, well, I know the Bible is right, but in my gut, I feel like I should... You can't do that. Can't do that. Scripture is the word of God, and it's the final word, the authoritative word of God. And it never changes. And... um, Think about this. You never know how you're doing without a measure. Because without a measure, then it's just a guess. You know, I've heard more than one person say, I tried to make my grandma's cake or chicken and dumplings or something like that. But the problem was she didn't use a recipe. And she would say, well, it's kind of like a a dash of salt or, uh, you know, a pinch of something else or a gob of whatever. And you don't know how much that is. You don't know how to measure that. In fact, how many times have you been driving down the road or riding in a car down the road, and it feels like you've gone 100 miles, but the odometer on the car says you've gone about 30. And uh, what's the difference? One is a guess, and one is a measurement. With the recipe, What do you do? You have to guess what grandma meant by her terms, where if you had a measurement, then you would know exactly what to do. Well, the scripture is our measurement. The scripture tells us how we are doing. The scripture keeps us from simply saying, well, I think I'm okay, or I think I'm on target. It lets you know. The Bible says that the scripture, of course, is like a a two-edged sword. And what does it do? It's so sharp, it can uh, cut through and divide actions from motives, for example. And sometimes we think that because we did the right thing, we get a little legalistic and think that our works are what really matters when God says, no, I want you to be motivated by love for me and love for other people. I want you to be motivated to do the right thing in the right way. Carl Kerrigan used to say, as important as it is to be right, it's more important to be right, right. You know what he means by that? To be right, doing the right thing, but doing it from the right intent and the right motive. Such a big, big deal. So. How do you ever know what you're doing when well, you go to the Scripture and you let the Scripture measure you because the Scripture is clear? Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3. Blessed are those whose way is blameless and who walk in the law of the Lord. That's Scripture. Blessed or happy to be envied are those who keep his testimonies. Where do you find those? In the Bible. Who seek him with their whole heart and who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Now we can all make a noble attempt and a valiant guess at what the Lord's ways are. But because of our limited perspective and because of the influences around us, because of the enemy that we face, and because of our own depravity, we're most likely going to be wrong unless we look to the Scripture, to the Word of God. And number four, this is, we want a divine commendation. Who do you want to really appreciate your life? Who do you want to really commend you when it's all said and done? Well, it's nice when other people notice. Charlie Brown said one time, working here is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. Gives you a warm feeling, but nobody notices. Well, do you really want to live your life for the approval of other people? Now, that's why a lot of you are in uh, debt in ways that you'll probably never get out because you want to impress people. Dave Ramsey even talks about the money that we'll spend on a car so that we're impressive to people at a stoplight that we'll never see again. We want people to think well of us and we dress a certain way and we act a certain way, live a certain way, spend a certain way because we want other people to think well of us. Well, that's pretty short-lived and that's not going to get you anywhere. But you know, that can also be in uh, other parts of life as well why did you join that club why you why are you a part of that civic organization why is it that you jump in and and help and sometimes it's not because you love but it's because you would be embarrassed not to or you want people to think of you in a certain way or as a certain person And they might be good things. They might be admirable things. They might be very charitable things. They might be things that really do render aid and help to other people. But yet it doesn't bless and fill your heart because it's not really done from the right motive. And the right motive is, of course, the glory of God. We want the satisfaction of divine approval. We want to know that our life has meaning that will be rewarded. You're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everything you do and everything you think and all your motives, it's all going to be evaluated. And Paul uses the example of putting things through fire. And when you put things through a fire, Things that are wood, hay, and stubble are going to burn up, but things that are gold or silver or precious stones are going to make it through the fire. They may be melted, their shape may be changed, but they come out on the other side. And so uh, we may do the right thing, but if we don't get to the point of doing it with the right motive, James speaks of doing it out of love, then what good does it do if the Lord is not pleased with it because he knows our heart. That's what gives life meaning, knowing that what we do will be rewarded. And it's living well in a way that benefits others. Now listen to this, but glorifies God. So when we look at things, does it benefit other people? Good. Does it also glorify God? Don't fall short of the glory of God. That's what uh, the Bible says, all have sinned. And what do they do? They come short of the glory of God. And that's one of the things we've got to watch. We may be doing uh, good things, expending a lot of effort and energy, blood, sweat, tears, we might say. But if it falls short of the glory of God, well, then it's sin. And so we've got to press on And mature and grow to where we understand that our motive matters in everything that we do 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6 through 10 so we are always of good courage we know that while we are at home in the body we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight yes We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. So think about the future. Think about the judgment seat of Christ. What am I doing? How am I doing it? Why am I doing it? What motivates me for it? And will it stand up before the scrutiny of God at the judgment seat of Christ? I think the judgment seat of Christ is something that a lot of believers never really think about You probably ought to think about it. And I think the judgment seat of Christ is also going to be one of those things that when it's all said and done, the very best Christian and the very worst Christian, the one who had the gold, silver, and precious stones, the one whose life basically burned up, I think one of the things that's going to happen is both of them are going to look and see, the only reason I'm here is by the grace of God. But don't you want to have something to lay at the feet of Jesus, the one who gave his all for you? Don't you want your life to be the kind of life that when you stand before the Lord and you look at the rewards that he has given you and you look at how your life is counted for Jesus like gold, silver, and precious stones that you can give him a gift to say, Lord, this is not of me, but this is of you and it is for you. What a great joy that's going to be when our lives are presented to the Lord in a manner that shows our love and our gratefulness for what he has done for us. And so when we look at these commandments, why is it that I want to speak the truth in love? We've given you some reasons here. Why is it that I want to be content and I don't want to be covetous of other people? We've given you some reasons here, but the main one is because you've got all you need in the Lord Jesus who provides for all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Take a deep breath, rest in him, confess these things that you violated as sin bask in His love and in His forgiveness, because Christ paid for that sin on the cross, and then let the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, guide you in the way that you ought to go. And let's have a new start as we finish this all up. And may the Lord bless you as you do, and thank you so much for your time as you have uh, tuned in to watch this today. May the Lord bless you richly.